If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is going to be our primary text this morning in chapter 3. We're going to look at a couple other verses just to give you the context and the background of the letter and fill in some gaps as we go. The focus of the sermon this morning is really on encouraging suffering saints. Encouraging those who are believers in Jesus Christ who are suffering. And uh, I texted that to Steve this morning, what I'd be preaching on. I said, I know Paul probably didn't have in mind your kind of suffering, but hopefully this will be an encouragement to those who are suffering physically as well. But before we jump into 1 Thessalonians, I want to turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark. And you don't have to turn there. You can just listen as I read a few verses. But in in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, we have a confession and a question, really, of Jesus to the disciples. and, And Peter's confession, his answer to this question. So in Mark, chapter 8, verses 27, Jesus goes on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asks his disciples this. And here's the text from Mark 8. Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly, that is Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now here's the catch though. Verse 31 of chapter 8. Mark says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Right after this, If you're familiar with the story, Peter pulls Jesus aside. In fact, it's a rather humorous scene at some levels. Peter pulls Jesus aside to sort of have a little counseling conversation with him. Jesus, you didn't really mean that, did you? The Messiah? You? Suffer? How can this be? And of course, Jesus strongly looks at Peter and rebukes him with the words, Get behind me, Satan. See, Peter and the rest of the disciples did not understand. They had not quite come to grips yet with the reality that that Jesus, yes, is the Messiah, but He's going to be the suffering Messiah. It's from this point in Mark's Gospel that Jesus really turns, and the whole book of Mark turns and starts to head towards Jerusalem and towards His suffering, His death, burial, and resurrection. So when we look at the text in Mark 8, and then Mark 9, and then finally Mark 11, as Jesus enters in, and as Ethan alluded to, we call it the triumphal entry, but but really we should call it the tragic entry. Because it's an ironic entry. It's an ironic scene in Mark 11. And one commentator said this, He comes as a king into the city who will be crowned with thorns and enthroned on a cross and hailed as the chief of fools. And the disciples prove to be the most fickle of all as they cheer Him as He walks in with the others. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed be the name of the Lord. This One who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, when it comes to the cross, they're nowhere to be seen. Suffering comes on and they scatter. 
So this is a tragic entry. And here's what we begin to learn from Mark's Gospel and then through the rest of the New Testament. The glory and the power of the Messiah is fully demonstrated as He suffers and dies on the cross and then rises from the dead. Let me say that again. The glory and the power of the Messiah is not fully demonstrated until He suffers and dies on the cross and then rises from the dead. See, God has chosen to display His power and glory through a suffering Savior. Which is so counterintuitive to us and our minds. The glory of God rests fully on Jesus. Sometimes we question that, right? Well, if, if Jesus was truly God and if He was truly full of the glory of God, then why suffer? Don't we have that question about our lives sometimes? If the glory of God, if the blessing of God fully rests on me, then why should we face suffering? But Mark very clearly displays and teaches us through the transfiguration and as he moves towards the cross that the glory of God does fully rest on Jesus and there is no one like him. And the Christian faith, the Christian faith is solely rooted and based on this reality of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glorious Messiah, but His glory comes through suffering. And as we begin to understand that, brothers and sisters, as we begin to understand that in God's plan of redemption, that that the path to glory comes through suffering, and it's a path of hostility and opposition from all humanity, we have to come to grips with this reality then for ourselves. If, If it is the path to glory for Christ, then it is not our path to glory, our path to resurrection through identifying with Him and also facing suffering as well. If it was true for our Messiah, won't it be true for us as well? So today as we consider Palm Sunday, and we consider how Jesus willingly started to head towards Jerusalem and enter this city, He did not turn away But he pressed in. He knew that suffering would come. And so we, as his followers today, are called to continue to follow Jesus as his disciples, knowing that suffering will come. Moms, let me ask you this question to begin. Do you ever find yourself saying to your children, I told you so? You're pretty good at it. My my mom was. Usually it's a prediction of some impending difficulty coming, right? Like this. I I told you that if you don't start on that project early, then you'll end up struggling last minute or staying up late and getting no sleep. Or maybe, Dad, it's a prediction of utter doom. I told you that if you climb on that roof, someone's going to fall and break a leg. Or maybe it's a reminder of warning to prevent some unwanted consequence. I told you, hey, don't speed or else you're going to get a ticket and your insurance is going to go up and you're paying your insurance. See, moms and dads are good at reminders. And then they are also good at reminding us when they reminded us and we didn't listen and that they were right. But Paul, like a good father, 
is good at reminding his children in the faith. And here in 1 Thessalonians 3, he does this. He, he reminds his children in the faith of some realities that are, that's based on what we just talked about from Mark and how Jesus would face suffering and so also his followers would faith, face suffering. But Paul's primary mode of reminding is not to scold them, but to encourage them in the face of loss, and in the face of opposition, in the face of affliction. See, Paul is greatly concerned for these believers in Thessalonica. And Paul, though, has genuine fear for their stability, because this is a young church. These are young believers. They, they have not yet been sort of fully taught. And they're still young in their faith and growing. And here Paul perceives something in this church at Thessalonica, something very important, that when suffering comes... They're being pushed to their brink of their understanding of who they are in Christ and, and what it means to be a true disciple and to follow Him. And they, they lack some encouragement and teaching that's needed. So Paul writes to them to help them grow and to establish them and to see them strengthened in their faith. And he's, he writes with a very genuine fear, though. And this comes out in, in the letter where he says this, that in this situation... Because they have new faith in Christ, there's this window of opportunity for Satan, for the tempter, for the accuser to sort of sneak in. And he would love to exploit their faith and to undermine it in the face of suffering. In fact, you can almost hear Paul's agony in, verse, in chapter 3. And our primary focus will be chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So look there with me. And you can almost hear Paul's agony and concern for these young converts. Paul writes this, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, for this purpose, to establish you and exhort you in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer, suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And you can just sense Paul's pastoral and fatherly concern for these young believers. He's fearful that their faith is going to be undermined and hijacked by the suffering and opposition they're facing by the tempter. And Paul's rightly concerned. Paul, like a good parent, when a child experiences conflict, he's, he's quick to rush in and to check on things and make sure, is everything okay? Is everything good? How do they respond? How do they handle the situation? Have they fallen away? Have they continued steadfast in their faith? And this concern elevates in verse two to, verses 2 and 3 there. He sends Timothy back. He says, here's why I'm sending Timothy back to you because I want you to be strengthened and encouraged in their faith so that no one would be shaken by these afflictions. But then Paul says the most amazing thing, and this is where it really sort of comes to a head in our minds. Because we don't, we don't truly understand how this can be. He says, you yourselves know that we are destined for this. We're destined for this. We're called to this kind of affliction and opposition as we follow Jesus. But before we move into it, exposition of that particular thing. Let me just say this. When, when we come to a text like 1 Thessalonians and we come to a text where 
it seems like the experience of the New Testament believers of suffering and their world doesn't really seem to jive with ours and our experience. Sometimes we're, we're easy to, it's easy for us to pull away and think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. But Paul's words here do two things for us. One, Paul's words will help us prepare you for future suffering. See, just like Jesus, when he lived here on earth, in flesh, among us, his whole life wasn't full of suffering and opposition and persecution and stonings and beatings. It came to a culmination point. And he very intentionally turned and followed the will of the Father and headed into it. See, Paul is wanting to encourage those who are facing suffering and opposition now, but he's also wanting to encourage and teach and prepare those of us who may or may not have faced suffering like this yet. But we will. The second aspect of Paul's words and how it will help us is that Paul wants to help clarify at least maybe one reason why we don't experience suffering like this today. So that's where we're headed. But Paul wants to encourage us, especially those who are facing suffering right now for following Christ. Now, by not be on the scale of, of anything from condemnation or rejection from family or co-workers or words of anger or words of slander to maybe even some kind of physical opposition and affliction. Paul's words are meant to encourage and to prepare. So, someone has said that the best thing that a pastor can do for his people is to prepare them and teach them how to suffer well. So, instructing new believers in the reality of opposition and affliction is the greatest thing that Paul can do for his people and for us. Paul's language here in chapter 3 is almost like prophecy and fulfillment. Look at it in verse 4 with me. He says this, that we were destined for this, and Paul places their experience sort of in this fulfillment where he says, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, and just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. The intended effect of this language is to reinforce Paul's ministry to them and the gospel. That what they have received is true. He's almost saying that because you're experiencing affliction, because you're experiencing suffering, here's the proof of the reality that your lives have been transformed. You've turned away from the idols of your life and the idols of the city around you. And now, because you're following Christ, you're destined for this. I told you it would happen, and now it is. And this is evidence of your true faith and your true discipleship in Jesus. Now, maybe we don't find much comfort for that, but Paul meant it to be comforting. To encourage them and say, hey, I told you so, and it happened. And the hope of this is that when we hear the gospel and we, our lives are transformed and the things that we used to worship and the idols that we used to give ourselves to and the way of life we used to have is... We're now turned away from it, and now we're facing some sort of friction in the culture around us. He says, well, this is evidence of the gospel at work in you. Be encouraged. Rejoice. Rejoice. But simply because we're facing suffering really isn't the whole story, right? That's not encouraging in itself. It'd be like a coach in the fall coming to his football team or his soccer team or 
and telling them, hey guys, I really want you to work hard. I want you to endure these 90 degree temperatures and these two-a-day practices and sweat your guts out and run sprints because I have some good news for you that in October at this championship game that you're going to be in, your arch rival is going to crush you. So have hope, endure now, because you're going to get crushed in October, right? A coach knows that's not really going to encourage them. That's counterproductive, and that's not what Paul's doing here. This does not motivate, this does not give chance, uh, this does not give hope of victory and success. But what Paul is saying is really an extension of what Jesus has said already in Matthew and other places. Where Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Paul and Jesus, they're not simply talking about suffer and endure, simply to suffer and endure. No, they're saying, here's the path to follow Christ. And as you follow the path of following Christ, as you follow Jesus, as you lay down your life and you give your life to Him, the reality is you will find life. Now that's hope. Don Carson, a New Testament scholar and a pastor, very insightfully says this about these words of Jesus, to take up one's cross does not mean that we'll have to put up with some relatively minor irritant, like a crabby in-law or a runny nose. Crucifixion was the form of execution reserved for the most despised and evil of criminals. Thus then, for anyone to take up their cross was to go to the place of painful, shameful execution. Jesus means that his followers must die to self-interest, declare themselves dead to the glories and the attractions of this world, and be prepared for suffering, even the most humiliating suffering. And in this, We are doing no more than following Jesus, for that is the way that Jesus went. Paul's encouragement and message of the gospel was nothing more than the message of Jesus himself. Look at chapter 1 with me in 1 Thessalonians. We'll help fill this out a little bit. In chapter 1, Paul gives these words. Which, which helps understand that this is not just about suffering, but, but it's about enduring for life and for hope. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he writes this, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that's to come. See, here's, here's the hope, is that as these people have turned away from their idols and they've turned away from the, the sin of their previous life and they've turned to follow Christ, here's the hope. They're following Jesus. And He's the one who will deliver them from the wrath and the destruction and the judgment to come. So when Jesus calls you to follow Him, even in the face of opposition and suffering, to lose your life, to prepare for affliction, when He calls you to do this, He's saying this, it's worth it. It's worth it. Friends, the cost to follow Jesus 
on this road, on this path into Jerusalem to the cross is the path of hope. It is the path of freedom. To be chosen by God is to be destined for suffering, yes. But to be chosen and called by God is to find life. So be encouraged. Be strengthened. Don't be shaken when suffering comes. Keep following Christ, for He is your life. Now, as we move from Paul's primary point here to, to encourage us, we've got to put some connections together because we think, well, how, how can Paul speak like this, right? I mean, how does he understand and how can he communicate things like this to us? Well, in Acts 16, Paul came to Thessalonica for the first time from Philippi with a stench of prison on his clothes. Paul gave his message... In chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 of Thessalonica, in the, uh, 1 Thessalonians, in the face of direct opposition, Paul came into Thessalonica and he was directly opposed by the message of the gospel. And the people of Thessalonica, when they heard the gospel, they responded in the face of opposition. And they saw Paul's affliction that he had for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the people there, they began to believe and to serve Jesus Christ, even as they were opposed. And then they continued to experience affliction for faith in Christ, as we saw in verse 3 of chapter 3. And then in verse 6 to 7, in spite of that affliction, they continue to believe and they continue to live a life of faith of Jesus. And why shouldn't they? When, when Paul came to, to Thessalonica, he preached in Acts 17 to them. He says this, Paul went in explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and say, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. He is the Christ. And it is necessary for him to suffer. So they understood this. They understood very clearly that to follow Jesus, to be his disciples, to believe in him, it wasn't just sort of something we tack on to our life, as many Americans think this is. Where, oh yeah, you check the box on your religious affiliation, I'm a Christian, and therefore your ticket is stamped to heaven. No, the Thessalonians understood that to follow Jesus meant to turn away from King Caesar. It meant a total transformation of life and, and to turn to Jesus who was truly king. This wasn't just a tack on to their life. And it's here that we begin to perceive a great difference and maybe a distinction between our faith and our belief in the message of Jesus and the gospel and our experience. Right? Because... My faith and your faith in our culture has only been very lightly tested. I wonder if Paul were here today. I've often thought this. If Paul were here today and observe our life and observe our worship, would he be concerned about us? Would, would he ask questions like this? Is, is your hope really deeply fixed? On Jesus? Is my hope really deeply fixed on Jesus alone? If testing like what came to Paul and what came to the church at Thessalonica, would our faith be shaken? Or would we be stable? See, even in our American church, we have a culture of protection from all kinds of suffering. 
And rightly so. This is not a bad thing, but, but here's where it leads us. We, we desire to pre- protect our children and our families from any and all opposition or questioning of their faith. We fear that if they're opposed or if somebody questions their faith, that they'll be shaken. And, and that can be a legitimate fear. Because Paul has that fear. For young believers who are not established firm in their understanding. But Paul's perspective is different than how we see most Americans respond to this. Instead of isolation and removing our families and removing our children from, from situations like this, his focus rather is on encouraging and strengthening and teaching and bringing them along in the faith and helping them understand what it means to truly follow Christ, not just by words, but by the example of his life. Again, let me give you some words from D.A. Carson, Don Carson on this. For our dads and our moms and our young marrieds and our college students and our pastors and deacons. He's speaking as a 70-year-old man looking on this generation and listen to what he says. There's a parental and pastoral implication to all of this. Sometimes we want to protect our children or our flock from too many things. For instance, we sometimes try to protect them from the caustic scorn of peers who have little time for Christian values. After all, we console ourselves. The Bible says much about earning a good reputation with outsiders. But that reputation is for integrity and kindness and love. It is never meant to be won at the expense of silence. I look at my own children and I wish for them, now listen to this, I wish for them enough opposition to make them strong, enough insults to make them choose, Enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost. A cost eminently worth it, but still a cost. A church that is merely comfortable, that never evangelizes, never encourages its people to stand on the front line, will never be strong. We will never be grateful and will never be able to sort out profoundly Christian priorities in our culture. And here's how he concludes. It is only in the context of suffering that Christians can learn what it means to be more than conquerors. Brothers and sisters, are we more concerned about our reputation and being thought well of by others that we never place ourselves in a place of risk for the name of Christ. Or to place our church family or our children, do we shelter them from all kinds of opposition from the world simply to protect them? And as such, we're actually fostering a weak faith? Paul says his priority is to teach them that reality and opposition of suffering. He wants to prepare them for when it will come. Are we ready? Will we follow Christ, knowing that suffering comes? Will we speak? Will we evangelize? Will we proclaim our loyalty to Christ? And this raises the question for us. Why is our experience so different today? 
and Paul's and the church at Thessalonica? There's really two answers to this. The first one is this. God, and this is something we give thanks for, God and His divine providence has allowed us to live in a time and a place where peace and religious tolerance still flourishes and still is advocated. Now, of course, there's certain Christian values that are deteriorating in our culture, but yet they're still present. They're in decline, but many operate. For, and for this freedom, we praise our God. We live in a place and a time where we can serve and we can love our God and we can worship together and gather like this with freedom and we give thanks for that. And we don't take it lightly. But here also is a challenge to us. It's a challenge to identify and turn from our cultural and personal idols. Because the context of our sort of pseudo-Christian culture around this makes it very easy for us to simply sort of be syncretistic with our culture and say that we're Christian. Idolatry in our culture is very subtle and sophisticated. And sometimes it's not very easy to define. Recently we've been studying on Wednesday nights with the teens and with the adult Bible study about the Exodus. And we spent some time rehearsing what it is to be an idol worshiper. We don't make golden calves. At least, I don't. I don't think you do. But we craft our own idols. Our hearts, as one theologian says, our hearts are idol factories, constantly creating idols that we bow down and worship. And Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, writes this, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Every culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each one has its shrines that we build, whether it's office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportion in our own lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense at Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more and more wealth and prestige. In ancient times, the, the, the deities were bloodthirsty and hard to appease, and they still are. See, our culture is still full of idols, just like the ancient days. We just might be more subtle and sophisticated about it. And it might sort of simply align with some of our moral and American values. So isn't this where the rub is for us today, brothers and sisters? As we come to the path of Christ, as we see him head towards Jerusalem, as he enters the city knowing that suffering comes, he begins to confront the idols of his own people. He goes to the temple and he calls them out for their false worship and for their religiosity, and for the busyness of their religion, and for the abuse of those who are wealthy by oppressing the poor. It's all about the outward. It's all about 
money and power and prestige. And Jesus walks in the temple and he walks into Jerusalem and he looks around and he, he says, he looks at the fig tree and there's no fruit and he condemns it. And he compares it to the temple and says, look, there's, it looks like there should be life. It looks like there should be fruit. But when I look at it, there is none. Brothers and sisters, this is where we are. Where it might look like we have life, But when you peel back the facade, is there any life at all? Is there any true faith? Is there any true fruit of following Jesus? Or have you just created your own God that you worship? An American idol of sorts. An American Christianity. Where you can simply be comfortable and secure and safe. And what if suffering does come? Do we find greater happiness in enjoying physical beauty of our bodies rather than delighting in the cosmic beauty of Christ? Do we think of our life as having the most meaning when we're respected by our co-workers or our boss or in the community? Or when we please God? Do we find our ultimate comfort in the fact that we have the strongest military power in the world instead of finding our comfort in our God and Father? Do we find our hope in a political party or position or president instead of finding our ultimate hope in the resurrected Lord? These are the challenging questions that we face as we consider our Savior who is willing to lay down everything for us, the rich becoming poor so that we might become rich. He turned towards Jerusalem willingly, knowing suffering had come. So are we willing to follow him, knowing suffering will come? Here's Paul's primary point of encouragement. So believers, if you're here this morning, and you've been rejected by family, or maybe you've lost your job, or you've lost relationships because of following Christ and your allegiance to Him, Paul's words in our sermon this morning for you is that you might find encouragement and strength and stability in the reality that you were destined for this affliction, just like all of us are, but there's hope and there's life in Christ. And first and foremost, you find it here. I mean, you could just look around, right? Just Sometimes it's fun. Just look around at one another. This is the body of Christ. This is your family. This is one reason why we take membership so seriously here, because, because this is family. So, so if you're suffering for this kind of thing, for following Christ, you know, you look around and like, we may not be pretty people. Some of us are. Some of us are not. We may not be pretty. We all have issues of our own. But I think the reality for all of us is that we deeply desire to serve one another and encourage one another and love one another, especially as we face suffering for following Christ. I can only imagine if somebody were to lose a job because of their allegiance to Christ, how, how this body would respond and it would turn and try to provide for the needs, both physically and spiritually, for that individual or family. So be encouraged. And for those of us who don't face suffering or opposition like this yet, Paul's words to you are to help you prepare to be ready when more opposition and affliction come, because it will. 
This gives us clarity and sobriety. We need to think about our lives clearly as believers in our culture. And we need to be sober about our lives as believers in our culture. Paul's words in some way should shake us awake. You are destined for this. You are called to this. Whenever the culture around us kind of lulls us to sleep and we're just content to think, man, peace and safety, peace and safety, we're good. That should be a warning sign to us. Our hearts are idle factories, so we need to think clearly on this issue. 1 Thessalonians 3 ends with Paul's prayer for these young believers, and I believe here it's fitting for us to end as well. Chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says this, And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. May He, as a result, make your heart strong and blameless and holy as you stand before the God, before God our Father, when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen.